Hey, now I'm not muted. Welcome everybody to Rationalism versus Mysticism, episode 11. Uh, some people might prefer me to be muted, but then again, why would you come to class? Um, so I just think of a very brief recap for those who weren't here, what we did last time. We were discussing my mystical intimacy. And this is an idea that is really just so beautiful because it represents the union of, of the individual ego and soul of man or woman with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And we brought some beautiful Pesukim that really express, you know, this open-hearted approach towards HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the, th the reason I think this is so beautiful and it's so novel for me is because so often we see God as this king who is so distant, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. And now we're able to approach God from a more intimate setting and a more intimate light. And I want to open you with my words. I want it to be the case that when I speak, it's not just something that's, you know, in your brain. It's not just something you're thinking about logically, but it's something also that, that you're able to take almost like a, a meditation and something that opens you up towards an experience of God, whether it be now or this week or whenever is important for you to open yourself to God in the future. Um, so we talked about divikut, and we talked about cleaving to God, staying close to God through um, either maintaining your individuality or even becoming fully unified with God in a very high mystical state where you lose the sense of self. And very often they describe this as feeling like you're remembering what it was like to be God and remembering what you were all along. This might sound very strange to you, but... I promise you that if not in this lifetime, hopefully in the next lifetime, you'll fully understand what this means. And, and you know, maybe uh, one day you will have an experience that is so outstanding to you that it feels like you knew what it was like to really be that close to God. Um, so we, we have a lot of ways of resolving certain paradoxes that come up. We're not sure, you know, if, if, if there's a God and he's in Odmi Levado, but I feel like I'm a separate entity. My ego feels separate. How do we really resolve this? And I think a big thing is through meditation. It's not about thinking. It's not through working out, it out logically. Instead, it's through setting an intention. Making myself into a throne and a chariot for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So, you know, the idea of loving Hashem, love is such a fundamental word here because love now takes on a new meaning. It, it, we were loving God with the, with the love that God has given us to love him. Where does that love come from in the first place? And we could see ourselves now as a vessel through which that love is passing. The idea of love kabal now really just means through being fully mindful of God using you as a vessel in any given moment. Um, and then you have this unbelievable experience, which the Kabbalists will call Bitul Hayesh, right? We talk about Yesh Me'ayin. Now, if you want to go backwards, you want to go back to Ayin from the Yesh. So now you're doing uncreation in a way. It's what we call in modern parlance, ego death, ego dissolution. And it allows the person go from, to go from Ani to Ayin, back to the nothingness, which is everything back towards this connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, back towards the end self, as they say. And you realize once you come back from this, it's supposed to be a transformative experience. And when you're transformed, you're able to come back towards your life. And when you're performing the mitzvot, Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi says, 
or sorry, Rabbi Nachman says, it's as though your Torah becomes the Torah of God and your mitzvot become the mitzvot of God because you allow God to occupy your body. And it's really, you removed yourself so completely that now this is God doing a dance with himself. And you just watch as that happens. And that's really so beautiful in my mind. Um, and it's something I think we could all set the intention to do when you pray Amidah tonight or when you do, you know, the mitzvah the next morning or anything, even, you know, feeding your parents food or doing an act, giving tzedakah, take the, the second before you take out the coin from your pocket, set the intention, say, may it be your will, Hashem, to use my body as a vessel in this moment as I hand this coin over and to use the smile on my face to brighten the day of this person. And it becomes a different experience. It becomes something that you're no longer ego-obsessed. You're no longer stuck in your own default mode network. You can now be outward and open to the other. Um, and ironically enough, by removing yourself, you discover your true self, which is God. Um, you know, kibyachol, I don't want anybody taking that out of context. We, we left off with the idea that some people might say this is very escapist. Some people might say, well, you're going to go and meditate and go into these higher realms for however long. But aren't you turning your back and abandoning all these things that are happening in this world? And the answer is really no. Really, in reality, you are, from the mystical perspective, by getting lost in this world, which you think is so real, that's the escapism. The realest real that ever is, is that mystical realm. And anybody who's ever been there will tell you the same. So the best thing you can do is be in touch as much as you possibly can with that realness so that when you do come back, if you do, when you do come back, you can do it in a way that's less lost than you were before, less entangled in all this that's happening and put a little bit of a separation between this awareness and this ego that you have. Um, and some people really did practice isolationism and in order to achieve a lot of these levels. And it really does work. Arizal, the Baal Shem Tov are notorious for this. And they came back and, of course, did so much for the Jewish community till this very day. Um, and we could see this idea of connection with HaGadosh Baruch Hu, either as an end goal in and of itself, or really as a prerequisite to the next phase of your unfoldment. Because on the one hand, the Devekut is so amazing that by definition what it means is having arrived the experience of cleaving to god is so so present and so overwhelmingly beautiful that you say to yourself it doesn't matter anything else nothing really nothing else really matters just this very moment of beauty so you ask yourself what is the meaning of all this we say that a a, a mystic without a paradox is like a beloved without their lover, right? Because we love pa paradox so much because it hits at the very heart of so much of this truth. So we say to ourselves, is there a meaning to life? Is there an external meaning? The meaning is that there isn't a meaning. The meaning is that it's so beautiful and meaningful inherently and intrinsically that it doesn't need to justify itself externally. So you can sit there on a beautiful day and just be with what is without insisting that there be more to the story. And you don't have to insist on a storyline. I mean, from one perspective, there is a storyline and you can indulge in that and say that's beautiful, but you have to balance that with the other perspective that there is no storyline. It just is what it is right now. And as Shakespeare says, it's like a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. 
And there can be no higher level, ironically, than that, where you don't have to give it a meaning. You don't have to insist, oh, because Hashem was putting the thing over here for me to see it, to remember this, that, that, that. Well, that might have been the things leading your ego towards the, the solution. But the thing that mattered was the dissolution itself. So, okay, you want to talk about the storyline that led up? Beautiful. But at a certain point, let it go. This is such bliss over mm-hmm. here. Then what's the need of Olam Haba? Ah, so I think Olam Haba is not a thing that happens in the future. I think that it's, it's concurrent with now, if you know how to tap in. Exactly. And like Nevu'ah, according to Harambam. And I know, uh, you know, there's, there's other elements to this as well, but a, a large part of what Nevu'ah is, according to Harambam, is it's a radio frequency that's out there that when you perfect your antenna enough, you tap into it. I think Olam Haba is the same thing. And I don't think you have to die to get to this Olam Haba. I was listening to Thich Nhat Hanh who says that. I was listening to, you know, uh, a lot of these meditations that talk about that. And uh, we have a friend who, who puts my pictures on a lot of these meditations and makes fun of me in a very funny way. That's why Saul's laughing. <laughs> so, so we'll continue now with, with what we didn't get to last time. So what I want to do with you is I want to finish up some ideas about mystical intimacy. Does other religions speak of a, uh, an Olam Haba? Oh, absolutely. They talk about this ineffable experience that is eternal and blissful and unbelievably beautiful. And it goes on forever and ever and ever. Um, and that's to me the same thing. And they also talk about a hellish, you know, what people call a bad trip could be the same thing. It feels eternal. It feels like it never ends. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Till death and all I'm about to us part. Um, so, so the next idea I want to share with you guys is the idea God is all. What does this mean in Odmilevado? First of all, what's the Peshat hapashut of that pasuk in context. So in the context of it, in Devarim, Moshe is telling Ben Israel, don't worship Avodazara, don't worship other gods, because in Admilevado, there's no other gods but Hashem. He's really ehad in the way that there's no other gods. But you're right in the sense, in the mystical sense, they expand it and they say, no, 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 no. It's not just that there's no other God but God. There is nothing in the whole thing. That is not God, because by definition, God is infinity. God is limitless and boundless, and he completely, you know, subsumes everything that we know about here. And he, he's, he is in, God is in everything, and everything is in God, as the panentheists will tell you. So that's en admilevado, panentheist. Ah, so there's pantheists who say God is literally nature, and he is, you know, everything in the sense that Nature is worth worshiping. But panentheists, the little thing that I would add to that is similar to pantheism, but it's the idea that this world is an illusion. So this is not literally God. This table is not God. The idea of separation itself, the notion that you think that this is separate from this, is already an illusion. And God is so one and so much part of it, and it's so much part of God, that you can't even comprehend it in your current state. So it's a little bit more humble of a perspective, in my, in my opinion. All right, so now we ask ourselves, okay, what, what quality is most important when, when thinking about this idea of en od milivado? You know, it's not just a, a unique experience to have. Um, it's more of a new perspective and a new state of consciousness to have, right? So en od milivado is not something, something you're supposed to just think about, like, logically. It's, 
every experience that I now have and every time I go out into the world, I should perceive it this way. And I should live my life as though that's the case, as though I am a part of God and you're a part of God and our interaction is God interacting with himself. So now no longer is that smelly, you know, homeless man on the street, just the smelly homeless man on the street. That's a part of God and I'm a part of God. And me helping him is not me doing a favor to somebody else. It's the right hand of God helping the left hand of God. So this idea of morality now is completely transformed, right? For you to see it, you can't feel all self-righteous now doing anything. But that's not, that's the point is that the best thing ever really is to see yourself as a vessel for goodness. You don't need to own this act of goodness anymore. You can be the vessel through which it flows and you'll be happy just being that. So what do you say when um, something that's perceivably bad or societally viewed as, as bad? Yeah. But one can argue, oh, for the greater good, you know, since everything is God, it would be good for the greater good to do this evil thing. So it would be, give me an example or, or so explain uh, more. An example from maybe the Bible, if you want to use that as an example. Yeah. Wiping out the nation of Amalek yeah. on our way into the land of Canaan. Uh-huh. So you're saying, what was your question? I mean, I would say maybe, maybe the Jewish perspective is that, you know, there's, there's a greater good that's being achieved there. Mm. But so I'm not saying that the ends justify the means. I'm saying that whatever you're doing, do it with the consciousness that you are a manifestation of God. And you know, I can't answer for, for evils that were done in the past or warfare and things. I really can't. Or the say again? Say the homeless man on the street. Yeah. Instead of giving him a helping hand, you know, I could say, you know, killing him and leaving him on the street could be putting an end to suffering of God's left hand. I was doing God's left hand a favor. So I can't, I have no way of proving to you that that's wrong or that you shouldn't do that. All I can say is try meditating and try opening your heart and try seeing if that's where it leads you. Let's make a $10 bet and see if that's where it leads you. That's, that's what I would say, is that in all likelihood, I don't think you will be led there because when you, but, but sometimes, you know what, euthanasia, it could be, it could lead you towards that. You know, I could see some people who will one day support euthanasia out of love. And, you know, it's not for me to determine yes or no. It's just for me to notice, okay, let's try to make this as open-hearted as we can. That's the best answer I could give at this point, but but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, if we call everything yeah. God, that is an ent- in essence saying that there is no God. If I say that everything is something, that means effectively it's also nothing. So Yes, exactly. That's why the Hachamim say God is also known as Ain. God is also known as nothingness. I know it's a t- it's a very tough thing definitionally, Freddie. And the problem is with words, it's it's almost impossible to actually speak out any truth. I, I'm so limited in my words. You know, like Lao Tzu says, uh, he who says it does not know, he, he who knows it does not say. And yet he wrote the whole book of the Tao Te Ching. Um, so that's like me right now. <laughs> you know, I'm not like Lao Tzu. But what I will say is that I'm giving myself this liberty to speak anyway despite the fact that my words will not do justice at all in the hopes that maybe they will open you in some way to an experience that you might have someday. 
the, the, and the, realizing the that paradox problem. is so important. Yeah. The main, the, the other main problem you have when you call everything God is that you can't have a relationship with, you can't have a relationship between two things if they're the same. You can't say there's a relationship between a table and itself, right? So, so it's that what I'm trying to get at is that there's something ineffable going on in the relationship of God and himself. And I know I, I will never be able to put this into words for you. It's only something that, that I can say is if you experienced it and came back to me, then maybe you, you would, I mean, not that I fully understand this either, but it's something that if you had a mystical experience, you might agree more with what I was saying. A mystical experience doesn't, doesn't equal uh, thinking that you are God. I mean, a mystical experience can be all sorts of things, uh, including feeling close to God. Yeah, um, exactly. So there's different tools. I, I to say that all, all, all matter is in essence uh, 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 a part of God. Yeah, so I don't want to get too far in this rabbit hole because we've we've discussed a lot of this in previous classes. But what I will say is you're 100% right, is that the words that I'm using are false, including the words coming out of my mouth right now. And this is all a paradox. And I wish I could do a better job of explaining what I'm trying to say. But I think that everything has two sides to it in a way. So in one sense, God is having a relationship with himself. And in another self, in another sense, there is no separate thing to have relationship with each other. So, from, so that's why there's different schools of thought that talk about, okay, really, when we're re relating to God in a mystical experience, you're not fully becoming God, but you're in relationship with God. And then there's other ones who say there's union, and there's other ones who say reunion. But what I think is that no matter what we do, we're never going to be able to say this is what it is definitively, because it can never be put into words fundamentally. And I'm, so, I'm sorry that I can't answer you any more than that. But at this stage, that's, that's uh, the best we can do, you know? We'll be on me giving you some acid in your tea next week when you come. If that makes sense. <laughs> so, don't, so come to class, but just be careful what you're drinking. <laughs> right? So um, now what are the ramifications of this? We mentioned morally that we need to see this in a way as, okay, this doesn't mean that you can't have healthy boundaries psychologically. This doesn't mean you should let people step all over you. This doesn't mean you should be in a codependent relationship with anybody. What it does mean is try to balance out everything that you do with this other perspective as well. That no matter what you're doing, the person you're dealing with is also a face of God. Don't allow for evil, but also be kind and compassionate to everybody and everything. And that I think you can't go wrong with, with that level of compassion. And then what's another ramification of this? Why doesn't it mean all those things that you said in the beginning? Which things? That you should let people walk all over you? Yeah, yeah, all those things. I mean, if, you know, I, the word should now becomes very right. difficult because I can't tell you what to do. Yeah. Exactly. So if you want, you could try it out. Come back to me next week. See how it, how it worked. It doesn't, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter how it worked. That's just... Good. So nothing really matters. I agree with you. But at the same time, <laughs> so everything why, really why matters. You say it doesn't mean that you should, should do this or that. I, I'm saying it doesn't mean that you should. It, doesn't it also mean doesn't mean that you shouldn't either. Okay. Exactly. If we want to get technical here. Because I don't want, I, yeah, I don't want anybody to draw any specific conclusions per se. But what I do want is for this is to open not, you to this other perspective in addition. Say it again. That doesn't mean that you should. 
So I don't think you should or shouldn't do anything. What I think is hear these words and see how they land on you and say, okay, that's interesting. Now, when I approach people who I'm fighting with, uh, my hope is that it will relieve more of your suffering and theirs. This perspective of seeing them as a face of God and you as a face of God. And through that, being able to approach the whole situation with, le with less reactivity and more compassion. That's my goal. Making every choice with good faith. Exactly. Everything you do should be with this higher intention of dealing with it in a holy way. If you want, or you could deal it, deal with it however you like. I'm not going to stop you, you know? So, so the other ramification of all this is if a person is so egotistical, Baruch Abba, if a person is so egotistical, so wrapped up in themselves, so lost in the story of who they are, right? If I buy so fully into the idea that I'm Michael Franco and everybody either tells me, Michael, you're so terrible and da, 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 and it makes me feel bad or Michael, you're so amazing and da, 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 and that sets me up for either failure or building on my ego. Both are bad. So the point is, don't take anything personally, number one, nothing. The both good, the bad, and the ugly. Huh? Both are bad or neither are bad? I think both are bad. Okay, exactly. Good. We have our Mr. Paradox so, here. <laughs> I'm just going to press the button. <laughs> at first, you were saying, like, this is the point, and then, and then you just, like, contradicted. My, no, my goal is whatever I'm saying is to open you towards more compassion and, and love. And that's my attempt here. So the same thing goes with being so wrapped up in the storyline of your life that if you're so buying into this thing, you're, you're not leaving room for God inside of yourself. Because if your ego is filling the cup up to the tippy top, then how much room do you really leave for God? The answer is none. So I think that's the beauty is bitul hayesh and you know, removing some of your ego will allow you to, to really connect more with God. Um, the idea that pride and anger the Hachamim tell us, what do they say? It's ke'ilu oved avodah Pride and anger. Why? Because they prevent connection with God. Being Having so much ga'ava means I'm so full of myself, I don't leave room for God. Anger is the insistence that I know what is right at this moment. And that what God, and, and again, I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't ever allow anger to flow through you or be kind towards the anger or even thankful towards the anger because the anger is trying to protect you. But if you double down on the anger continuously and you keep on getting this uh, supply from it, and I think the Buddha used to say that anger has a honeyed tip, but a poisoned source, that it feels good initially to, to, to revel in that anger. But at the end of the day, the source is poisonous and you'll, you'll realize that very quickly and you realize that it's going to disconnect you from any real connection with God. So allow the anger to flow through you and be kind and compassionate towards that anger and thank it for wanting to protect you, but tell it that it can, you know, it can lay down its weapons and that everything will be okay. As long as you're not, you know, in any grave danger at that moment. Um, so now the question is, you know, in AA, to quickly take us back to sure. one of our first classes. Please. Why not view anger as the elephant and embrace it? Mm. So that's a the lot thing. Of, I feel like a lot of times anger is that it's an intuitive 
I mean, obviously it, it can spiral out of control or it can, mm -hmm. you know, be abused or uh, be misused. Um, so channel it. Misuse you. Yeah. But, but a lot of times it starts off as, as part of that elephant, that instinctive yes. uh, part of you that's, that's there for, for a reason. Yeah. So, so my, my goal here, I guess, is relief of suffering. So I think a beautiful thing is if you're able to sublimate like the, like all the defense mechanisms, that's one of the healthy defense mechanisms. So if you could sublimate that anger and you want to become, become a boxer, amazing. Use it to your advantage. But also we have this rider on top of the elephant that's, that we want to allow to have a voice in the conversation. We don't want the elephant to be scared and afraid, which is often when anger kicks up the most. And there's tremendous suffering. So that if the rider has a little bit of a voice in the conversation, it can steer the elephant in a way that decreases suffering. That's, that's my goal here, right? So in AA, they talk about what's really your higher power. So unfortunately for alcoholics for many years, their higher power is the alcohol. They'll do and say and, and give up anything just for the sake of that alcohol. So it could be drugs for people. It could be alcohol. It could be themselves. And it could be, hopefully, eventually, God, whatever that means to you. And very often that means the non-ego. That means that which is fundamentally not my limited sense of self. And that's something to work on through acts of love and kindness and also through meditation and through prayer. So the Baal Shem Tov says that anger that's turned inwards, how does it manifest? As depression. When you're depressed, it's like self-obsessive. And again, I've been depressed, you know, from time to time. I think I don't, I don't have clinical depression, but I think everyone has been depressed at some point in their lives. So I'm not putting anybody down for these feelings. But what I will say is if you notice, the sadness and depression always is looping about yourself. And it's always fundamentally because you're scared and afraid and it's understandable. So tell the elephant it's okay. Tell the elephant, I know you're suffering, but, you know, realize in this moment, everything is fine. And take a deep breath and let it in and out. And you can't control the future. You can't control the past. And very often we, we put ourselves down and we continue to have these same thoughts about ourselves that don't really help. Um, and some of these Hasidim go so far as to say that depression is a sin. Now, I would never tell this to a patient of mine. I would never say that because that's not helping anybody. What, but I think that they have a point in the sense that they're trying to say, don't get too obsessed with your ego because it won't allow you to really worship God. And when you're so depressed and you can only worship God through Simha, make sure you get back there. It's just telling you, get back to the Simha. Try to treat your depression. And that certainly doesn't mean putting yourself further down for being depressed. Don't feel more depressed for being depressed. Don't feel angry because you're angry. It's just a never-ending cycle. Just let go in this moment. Just let go. God must be worshipped through joy, as they say. And here's a quote from uh, Byron Sherman that I thought was beautiful. The main rule in serving God is that you should keep yourself far from sadness and depression to the greatest of your abilities. So as Jordan Peterson would say, treat yourself like somebody that you're responsible for taking care of. Right. So if you treat yourself, imagine you had a, a beautiful child of yours or a niece or a nephew, somebody you really cared about. Talk to yourself the way you would talk to that child. 
Why do we speak to ourselves in such a negative way? Why do we treat ourselves so harshly? Would you talk that way to your child? Would you talk that way to your niece or nephew, to somebody you truly love? So you should never talk to yourself that way or to the inner child that way. And then you have the idea, as Ram Das would put it, a phony holy. A phony holy is a person who says, I know what I'm going to do. In order to, to really, uh, you know, get myself towards this egolessness, towards this ego dissolution and humility, I'm going to put on the show of holiness and then I'm going to tell everybody how holy I am and I'm going to wear the, the proper garb and I'm going to meditate a certain amount of hours. I'm going to make sure everybody knows. And as Alan Watts would say, the biggest ego trip going is trying to get rid of your ego. So here's the thing. You can't try either. You can't try. And that's where the Christian idea of grace comes in. It has to be something that's fundamentally from beyond you. The best thing you can do is effortless effort, as they say. So you can sit there and you can set an intention if you like. But beyond that, don't try too hard. Just be present with what is now rather than insisting on something in the future. Um, now, and if anybody has any questions or comments, we could take them. Otherwise, we'll continue to the next section. It's such a passive approach. It, it can feel like it. Yeah. Whatever goes, like, it's nice, but no so, move. So the question is, though, what more control do you have? What more can you do? I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things that are, you're able to do. Like the AI prayer, you know, God grant me the, the wisdom to accept the things I cannot change, the uh, courage to think, change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, something that I got one of the words wrong. But the ability to do what I can do with what I have versus allowing things to be as they must be if I can't do anything. And even when you're doing something, don't do it out of a need to constantly change everything because then you become neurotic. Do it with a mindfulness and a presence. So there's a way of fully doing and changing the world and being involved in efficaciousness without doing it neurotically and without doing it out of a need and an ability to accept what is right now. I would say always do things out of an acceptance of what is and an equanimity. If you can't have that inner equanimity, it's probably a sign that you're going to screw things up. If you go into a conversation where you're not in equanimity, I would say take five minutes, meditate, and then call the person. That's the best way I could put it. But yeah, every situation is uh, is its own thing. If it's an emergency, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, please. The atheist, Ah, so I think I'm going to say something very strange now. I think no matter what you do, it's impossible for you, for you to not be worshiping Hashem in this very moment. In a sense, in a sense, everything you're doing is worship of God. And, and I know that sounds crazy because what about acts of evil? Well, in, in one sense, it's going to sound crazy, but everything that happens is somehow part of what is and part of God's way of doing things. And you don't really have a choice but to worship God and but to fulfill the divine will. There's no such thing as atheists. I, I would say people can call themselves atheists. But I think at the end of the day, it's just revealing a part of their storyline of them of their lives. And, you know, it's up to that person to determine. I have no problem with people want to label themselves atheist, agnostic, believer in God. It's not really what matters, the labels. What matters really is, are they 
on a journey towards the healing or are they getting further and further away from that healing? And you know what? It's both part of the process. As some of the, the Hasidim would say, right? That's right. We hope so. Um, so now we'll talk about this idea exactly. There's no real gap. This whole time we've been speaking as though you're here and God's there, and it's impossible to speak in any other way, but including for me right now. And that's the, the, the hilariousness of it. And that's a big part of it is humor. Once you come to that experience of the all, it's like, ha, 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 I cannot believe for a second that I was duped by myself this whole time into believing that I wasn't God. And, and you know, take that as you will, but it's something to experience. That's the most I can say about that. But here, let's talk about the, the idea that there's really no gap. So the goal is not for you to actively bridge that gap, but to realize that there never was a gap to begin with. That this whole time, you really were part of all of it. And you really were fundamentally a part of everything that is part of God. So meditation can lead to what's called barrier reduction, reducing the illusions of barriers and this shows us how much we were already connected with God. You guys know the, the poem, Footprints in the Sand? All right, so it's a person who says, I walked along the seashore with my Lord. And he says, every time, you know, I, I looked at the, the footprints, I saw there were two sets of footprints all along the path of my life. He's looking back at the whole journey of his life. And then at certain specific points, the author notes, there were only one set of footprints instead of two. And these were the most difficult points in the author's life. And he says, I looked at my Lord. And I said, Lord, how could you do this to me? How could you leave me alone in my times of greatest need and greatest suffering, greatest arrest? And God looks at the author and says, my son, it was in those times during your most difficult moments that I picked you up on my shoulders and carried you. And it, it hits so hard because right now we don't really understand what that means. We don't get that because we're not in a, we're not Buddhas right now. We're not fully, you know, enlightened beings at this moment. But I assure you, and my prayer is that when you do have this experience one day, you'll see that the whole time, it really was all part of the grand symphony of God. And this is not an attempt by me to take away your complaints and your prayers and go out and shout at God if you need to. And go out and pray and do what you need to. I'm not saying to, to accept what you feel you can't accept at this point. What I am saying is there is an experience to have in which this is the case. And I, I bless all of you that you should have this experience. Um, so, so there's a, be a beautiful parable from the hachamim of the of the kabbalah i believe i don't know i forgot who but they say they compare all of this the whole story of life to uh, a bunch of individuals trying to navigate through the king's palace we know hanabam in the end of the more talks about god's palace and the king's palace and some people are in the palace some people are their backs turned to it and it's all levels of nivua well in this idea there's a maze of walls and obstructions and People are trying to navigate. And of course, certain rooms, they stumble upon them. It's full of gold and full of riches. And there's these diversions of attention by piles of treasure. That represents people who get lost in the vicissitudes of ego, the vicissitudes of life. But the prince, eventually, right, uh, he finds his father. He ends up 
navigating that whole maze and he finds his father, the king. And that represents the highest level of a mystic. And it was shown that all this time, it was all one grand illusion all along. As we say in Tehillim, Hashem drapes himself in light like a cloak or with a, like a person does with a shirt. That everything you're seeing right now is really all inside your head. It's a cover, right? This light that you're perceiving, is that really out there? Well, you have no way of knowing because this is just the brain perceiving it. So the world, is the world happening in your brain or is your brain happening in the world? It's both at the same time. Your brain is in the world and the world is also in your brain and you have no way of really parsing the two or separating the two. And creation, therefore, is God's hiding place. God is hiding here. And that's why the Hachamim say, when we see God's greatest greatness, we're also attuned to God's greatest humility. That when we fully are able to see, oh my God, this is so amazing. God, you were hiding here all along. You're so humble. I can't believe you were hiding all this incredible beauty and this infinity within the finite. Within the seemingly limited was really the limitless. And like they say, there was in one grain of sand, you could see the whole universe. So there's great joy for the prince in this realization. And him and his father just start laughing. And I say, I cannot believe this whole time that I was lost. And this is the idea of panentheism, as we mentioned, that God is really in everything and everything is in God the whole time. Uh, and as they give certain Mishalim, the ray that was always part of the sun really just seems like it's a ray of light on its own. But the whole time it was really part of the sun. You can't talk about the ray of light without the sun. The drop of water returning to the ocean. Well, the whole time it was really part of the ocean. It just kind of separated itself seemingly, but the whole time it was still a drop in the ocean. A branch is part of a tree trunk, right? You can't talk about the branch unless there was a tree trunk connected to it. So the point that they're trying to make is they're trying to help you in your mystical journey to arrive where you already are, to remember what you've forgotten. What were you before your parents conceived you? What were you before you woke up that first time? It's going to be the same thing after you go to sleep for that last time. So like we said earlier, real escapism is getting lost in life in this world. So a lot of the ramifications of this are have children, start a business, but do it always with the knowledge that you are a divine vessel and that you should be like the Hachamim say, Sadiqim betochair, Sadiq, who is involved in the vicissitudes of life without getting lost in those vicissitudes. And the Baal Shem Tov says, when you're saying Shema Yisrael, when you're saying the word Ehad, fully nullify yourself. Consider yourself null and void and realize at that moment of saying Shema, the whole world is full of the glory of God. Baruch Shem Kivod This whole world is His Malchut and it's filled with Hashem's glory. Kamayim layam mechasim. And finally, before we get to the masculine stuff, we'll talk about love of God. You want to talk about the martyrdom of Rabbi Akiba. He says to him, you know, after the, the Romans are, are killing him, and, and he says, Shema Yisrael, and his students are saying, Ad Khan Rabbeinu, even until now, Rabbi, you're going to say Shema in your very last moments? He says, my whole life, I wanted to fulfill this mitzvah. And now, 
I'm able to fulfill it. And he has no ulterior motive. It's the ultimate sacrifice. So the idea here is to find yourself by losing yourself in God. You don't have to be a literal martyr. But what you do have to do is be willing to let go of your sense of self. Fully let go. Much easier said than done. And for some people, it takes years of practice. For some people, they could be shocked into it in this very moment. The human being is seen as a microcosm, as a small version of this whole world of God. And that's why the sefirot correspond to body parts. Rabbi Nachman said, a person who thinks he is a world is small. But a person who knows he is small is a world. Right, so I have I know people who say, the world was created for me. So I know that whenever I find things in my life, I, that's always symbolic towards me, towards me, towards me. It's always ego obsessed and self-reflexive. But the key here is that that Rabbi Tarfon says you have to balance that with I am but dust and ashes. And it's the paradox at all moments. Do you matter? Yes and no. You matter ultimately and unbelievably and inf infinitely. But also, you're, you're not, your ego is not what matters. But you matter in the sense that you're part of everything which matters so much. And you're part of this grand symphony, which is so beautiful. And one day, I bless you that you should see your ego as part of that play and part of that drama that played out in such a beautiful way. Like, the, like they say, you should become boundless, like the ayin, like that nothingness. The Magid Mezrich says, how could anyone who might not wake up the next morning be important? Right? If you think that you can guarantee you're waking up tomorrow morning, you got another thing coming. So how can you possibly be so egotistical? You could just get hit by a truck out for a bit in a second. One comedian I know, he's hilarious. He says, how can anybody re really be an atheist? He's like, you can't even see like 20 feet in front of your face. He's like, what if every time... That, you know, you're, you know, this is the, <laughs> it's like, what if every time you're, you're trying to look for God, God is, God is always like right behind your back. Like, oh, no, it's right behind my, always right behind my back. It's, it's a joke, but it's so funny because this is the truth. We, we have such a limited human perspective that to rely on it. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's, it's, did you look everywhere? Did you look in the downstairs bathroom? Yeah, I didn't. I, you go check for me as I see if you find him there. <laughs> ah, he's right here. Oh, Baruch Hashem. You didn't even have to go. Louis, Louis. You talking about Louis? Louis? Yes, I didn't want to say who, <laughs> but thank no. you for talking. <laughs> I know, okay. sorry I brought him into this. but ah, no. Don't worry about it. They'll cancel me for a lot of reasons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I really like it. So yeah. Anyway, thanks for bringing it up. Of course, yeah, my pleasure. So we have the idea of Yamav Ketzel Over. Man's life or days are like a passing shadow. We're so fleeting. In the Chinese view, the world is like this giant organism. And you're part of this beautiful giant organism. The whole cosmos is a beautiful living thing. Not living in the sense that we define it biologically, but it's all alive in its own sense. And you're a part of that. Um, you don't have to take this reductionistic, mechanistic view that everything is basically dumb and dead. And we're the only intelligent things that happen to be on this rock of a planet. That's not the view you need to take. Everything is alive. Everything is vibrating and everything is energetic and in motion all the time. And you are continuous with that. You're the particles in your body are. And the strings that are vibrating and everything we think are also involved in your body. 
they're playing a grand symphony towards God and you're a wave in the cosmic ocean, as they say. There's this beautiful cosmic ocean and you're just one wave in that, but you're a wave. So when you finally get in touch with this and you stop resisting all of this and you get into the flow of it, like the Taoists will say, instead of swimming against the current, when you accept the things you cannot change and you fully get into the groove of the universe, you allow yourself to have the power of the ocean at your back. And now you feel like you're really flowing with it. And you know what? Like water, water is always finding the path of least resistance. You're doing the same thing the whole time, but that's okay. You have no other choice. Your ego will do that no matter what. And that's fine. Just enjoy the ride. And if you ever get neurotic and you say, I don't know, but how am I going to get here? Da, 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 da. You say, okay, but just like the water, you're going to keep flowing. You'll find a way. And it really doesn't matter so much in the end of the day. So don't really sweat it too much. I'm going to leave you guys with this, uh, this story. I don't know if we're going to finish it, but the person who, who took some mescaline, I think this is really a very, very interesting account. And I wanted to, to read some of it with you. And if we don't finish it, uh, we'll continue it next class. But the name of the author is John Blofeld. He's this British guy who is also a Buddhist, um, a Buddhist scholar. And he talks about taking mescaline. And I want to talk to you and read to you some of his account of what that was like for him. Because we're talking about mystical intimacy, and it all sounds so ancient and so far away. But I want to show you that there are people who have had this experience in this very day, in this very uh, you know, time period of our lives. So let's dig right in. Sure, no, I should have told you. So mescaline is actually the active drug in peyote. Peyote is the cactus that the Native Americans have. Um, it was actually taken by Aldous Huxley, who wrote The Doors of Perception uh, in the 50s. And he really had a very large influence on the way that people think about psychedelic experiences and um, it's, it's notorious for making you just be amazingly overwhelmed with the world of all that is. It's amazing to see that there are so many things in reality and to be aware of this is, is incredible for, for these individuals. So I just want to read to you the account of somebody who, who took masculine. This is an illegal drug, but uh, I'm sure you can yeah. find people. Yeah, exactly. It's for next class. If somebody wants to donate. <laughs> It's legal, probably. Yeah. The cactus itself. And sorry, mescaline is peyote or just a part of it? Mescaline is the, the reason that people eat peyote. Is be, well, or peyote is the whatever, the substance. Peyote is the plant, and mescaline is the drug in the plant. Mescaline is the THC, in other words. Yeah, it's the THC. Exactly. <laughs> right. So presently, I tried to visualize the Tibetan mandala, says John Blofeld of the peaceful deities, but succeeded only in conjuring up some rather metallic looking demons. Although they, although they were far from frightening and not even uh, very lifelike or realistic, being someone of a cross between metal statues and living beings, they did convey to me as though mockingly that to expect a profound religious experience as a result of taking mescaline was too presumptuous. So now his ego is getting to him. He's like, what did I do? I thought I would be, look at me. I took mescaline. I'm going to have a religious experience. And now they're mocking him. These these beings that he's seeing. Soon after that, the sensation of a rapidly fragmenting personality returned to me with frightening force. He says, who am I? I grew alarmed for my sanity and should have hastened to take an antidote for the mescaline had one been available. Though J.S. persuaded me to eat some lunch, 
I was in no condition to enjoy it. By then, things seemed and heard pre presented themselves as independent visual and oral experiences with no seer and bearer to link them into one of those single compositions, which at any given moment form the, the content of normal consciousness. Amazing, amazingly, right now, his ego is dissolving. He doesn't have this cohesive sense of self, and he's watching as there's these separate parts of him. But And by the way, they've been separate like that the whole time. It's just that his ego made him think that they were all unified. The food went down my throat as usual, but it seemed to be disappearing into a receptacle connected with me only to the extent that it was too near to be visible. The, men, the mental stress grew agonizing. My fear of permanent madness increased, and I suffered especially from the feeling of having no inner self or center of consciousness into which to retreat from the tension and take rest. He's trying to cling to a sense of self, but cannot find it. An additional discomfort was the sensation of bright lights shining now. And then from behind me, as though someone were standing there flickering a flashlight on and off, the movements of my manservant who came in several times with dishes of food, sweets, and coffee occasioned great uneasiness. Whenever he was out of, the, out of sight, I felt he might be standing behind me for some vaguely sinister purpose. And since he knew nothing of the experiment, I was afraid he would suppose that I was mad. In other words, he's very paranoid. Doubtless, anyone else's uninvited presence would have made me equally distrustful and uneasy, though I was not bothered at all by the company of JS because he was in the know and I felt the need of a nurse or guard. No words can describe the appalling mental torment that continued for well over an hour. All my organs and sensory experiences seemed to be separate units. There was nothing left of me at all, except a sort of disembodied sufferer, conscious of being mad and racked by unprecedented tension. There seemed no hope of being able to escape this torture, certainly for many hours, perhaps forever. Hell itself could hardly be more terrifying. At about 1 p.m., I dragged myself to my bedroom, shut myself away from everyone like a sick animal, and fell on my bed. In my extremity, I suddenly made a total surrender, right, and called upon my idam. My idam, I think, is one of these Buddhist practices. Come madness or death or anything, whatever, I would accept it without reservation if only I could be freed from the tension for the first time in my life. I ceased to cling, to cling to self, loved ones, sanity, madness, life, or death. My renunciation of myself and its components was so complete as to constitute an act of unalloyed trust in my idam. What is he doing now? He's finally letting go. Finally. Within a flash, my state was utterly transformed. From hellish torment, I was plunged into ecstasy an ecstasy infinitely exceeding anything describable or anything I had imagined from, that, from what the world's accomplished mystics have struggled to describe. Suddenly there dawned full awareness of three great truths, which I had long accepted intellectually, but never until that moment experienced as being fully self-evident. Now they had burst upon me, not just as intellectual convictions, but as experiences no less vivid and tangible than our heat and light to a man closely surrounded by a forest fire. Number one, there was awareness of undifferentiated unity 
embracing the perfect identity of subject and object, of singleness and plurality, of the one and the many. Thus I found myself, if indeed the words I and myself have any meaning in such a context, at once the audience, the actors, and the play. Or in like my rabbi likes to say, by the way, the dream, the dreamer, and the dreamt. Or Harambam says, God is the knowing, the known, and the knowledge itself. Logically, the one can give birth to the many, and the many can merge into the one or be fundamentally but not apparently identical with it. They cannot be in all respects one and many, and many simultaneously, but now logic was transcended. I beheld and myself was a whirling mass of brilliant colors and forms which being several colors and several forms were different from one another, and yet altogether the same at the very moment of being different. He's speaking so much paradox, but he's really trying his best to express this. I doubt if this statement can be made to seem meaningful at the ordinary level of consciousness. No wonder the mystics of all faiths teach that understanding comes only when logic and intellect are transcended. In any case, this truth, even if at an ordinary level, of consciousness, it cannot be understood, can in a higher state of consciousness be directly experienced as self-evident. Logic also boggles at trying to explain how I could at once perceive and yet be those colors and those forms, how the seer, the seeing, and the seen, the feeler, the feeling, and the felt could all be one. But to me, All this was so clearly self-evident as to suggest the words childishly simple. Number two, simultaneously, there was awareness of unutterable bliss, coupled with the conviction that this was the only real and eternal state of being. All others, including our entire experience in the day-to-day world, being no more than passing dreams. This bliss, I am convinced, awaits all beings when the last vestiges of their selfhood have been destroyed or, as as in this case, temporarily discarded. It was so intense as to make it seem likely that body and mind would be burnt up in a flash. Yet, though the state of bliss continued for what I later knew to be three or four hours, I emerged from it unscathed. And number three, at the same time came awareness of all that is implied by the Buddhist doctrine of dharmas, namely, that all things, whether objects of mental or of sensory perception, are alike devoid of own being. Mere transitory combinations of an infinite number of impulses. This was as fully apparent as are the individual bricks to someone staring at an unplastered wall. I actually experienced the momentary rising of each impulse and the thrill of culmination with which it immediately ceased to be. So now he's seeing all this idea of separate things and egos and differences of storyline. He watched as they all came and went and he was able to transcend that. He was able to not get lost in those transitory experiences. I shall now attempt to describe the entire experience in terms of sensory perception, though not without fear that this will cloud rather than illumine what has been said for the content of my experience being super sensory and super intellectual can hardly be made understandable in terms of originally coined to describe the mental and physical content of ordinary perception. So we only have a few more minutes, but I think it's worth continuing with you guys' permission. If anybody has to leave, I want to allow you to leave. I don't want to keep you here against your will. Um, But I really think that until the rabbi comes and kicks us out of here, 
it's worth, if you guys have any questions until now, we can address them, but I think it's worth continuing a little bit more. Reality, it seems to me in retrospect, can be viewed as a plasma of no intrinsic color or form that is nevertheless the substance of all colors and all forms. Hardly charged with vivid consciousness, energy, and bliss, it is engaged in eternal play. Always coming back to that idea of play or dance or music. Or it can be viewed not as a plasma, but as an endless succession of myriads of simultaneous impulses, each of which arises like a wave, mounts and dissolves in bliss within an instant. The whirling colors and shapes which result uh, produce certain effects that recall flashes of rare beauty seen in pictures, dreams, or in the world of normal everyday consciousness. It can be deduced that the latter are in fact faint reflections of this eternal beauty. I remember recognizing a well-loved smile, a well-remembered gesture of uncommon beauty, etc. Though I perceived no lips to smile, no arm to move, it was as though I beheld and recognized the everlasting abstract quality to which such transient smiles and gestures had owed their charm. Again, reality can be viewed as a God dancing with marvelous vigor, playfully his every movement producing waves of bliss. From time to time, he makes stabbing movements with a curved knife. At every stroke, the bliss becomes intense. I remember that the plunging knife made me cry aloud. That's it. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. Or else reality can be viewed as a whirling mass of light, brilliant color, movement and gaiety coupled with unutterable bliss. Those who experience it cannot refrain from laughing cries of yes, yes, yes. Ha, ha, ha. That's how it is. Of course, of course. I felt as though after many years of anxious search for the answer to some momentous problem, I was suddenly confronted with a solution so wholly satisfying and so entirely simple that I had to burst out laughing. I was conscious of immense joy and of incredulous amazement at my own stupidity at having taken so long to discover this simple truth. That's what we talked about earlier, that all there is to do is laugh. Once you become enlightened, say the Buddhists, that's all there is left. You just laugh. And you also, it feels like you have this story to tell, but it's at the tip of your tongue, but you can't even speak it out because it's just so fleeting. And it's like somebody who comes back from a dream and it's, you can't even say the dream. Within this play of universe, there is endless giving and receiving, though giver, gift, and receiver are, of course, the same. Freddie, you were asking about this before. I'm sorry, it transcends logic. That's the thing. But clearly, he understood what he was saying in some experiential way. It is as though two deities who are yet one are locked in ecstatic embrace, giving and receiving with the abandon of adoration. The Tibetan Yabyum representations of deities hint at this. The artists who paint them must be forgiven for their inability to indicate that giver and receiver are not only one, but formless. Though indeed, some artists managed to suggest that the oneness by blending the figures so well that the yum is not seen unless the picture is given prolonged and careful scrutiny. During the experience, I was identical with the giver, the receiver, and the incredible bliss given and received. So he's the yin and he's the yang and he's the interface of the two. There is nothing sexual about this union. It is formless. The bliss is all pervading. And giver and receiver, giving and receiving are not two, but one. It is only in attempting to convey the experience that the imagery of sexual joy suggests itself as perhaps 
coming a little closer than other imagery to the idea of an ecstatic union in which two are one. Right? Amazingly, this is exactly why the Sefirot always talk about a sexual union. But it doesn't have to be only that. He's saying, you know, that's the best we can maybe do with our limited vocabulary. Maybe it's closer to that than other things. But really, it's not a sexual thing in a physical sense. And it's formless. And the two are really one the whole time. So now he talks about his conclusions. And with this, we'll end. Some of the conclusions I drew from the whole experience are as follows. A, fear and anxiety as to our ultimate destiny are needless, self-inflicted torments by energetically breaking down the karmic propensities which give rise to the illusion of an ego and of individual separateness. We shall hasten the time when reality is revealed and all hindrances to ecstatic bliss removed unless bodhisattva-wise we compassionately prolong our wanderings in samsara so as to lead other beings to that goal. He says, you know, really, we don't, we just need to remove our egos and everything will, I promise you, he says, be fine. But we can choose to maintain those egos to help guide other egos who are suffering even more than us. And that's a bodhisattva. B, the world around us so often gray is the product of our own distorted vision, of our own, our ego consciousness and ego clinging. By casting away ourselves together with all longings, desires, qualities, and properties that pertain to them, we can utterly destroy the illusory egos, which alone bar us from the ecstatic bliss of universal consciousness. All it is, is just remove your ego. He said, it's that simple. The key is total renunciation. But this, alas, cannot be achieved by a single effort of will because each of us is hemmed in by a hard shell of karmic propensities. The fruit of many, many misspent lives, the three fires of desire, passion, and ignorance are hard to quench, and yet they would be quenched in an instant. Could we but make and sustain an act of total renunciation? Such an act cannot result from effort or longing, because these would involve our egos and thus actually strengthen them. So again, don't try to transcend your ego, because if you're trying, that's your ego. Thus, in the ultimate stage, even effort and longing for nirvana must be abandoned together with everything else. This is a truth hard to understand. C, the Buddha's experience indicates that when enlightenment, for example, full awareness of that blissful reality whose attributes include inconceivable wisdom, compassion, light, beauty, energy, and gaiety is obtained in this life, it is possible to continue carrying out human responsibilities, behaving as required. You can continue to live in the world, he's saying, responding to circumstances as they arise and yet be free of all of them. So it is with a talented actor who, in the part of Romeo, weeps real tears. When his grief for Juliet threatens to overwhelm him, he can withdraw inwardly from his role long enough to recollect the unreality of Juliet and her death, and yet continue to give the same fine performance as before. That's a bodhisattva. That's a person who's dwelling at two levels at once. Fully in equanimity, fully knowing that this is really all a game, fully knowing that this world of forms is an illusion, and at the same time able to be fully engaged and open-hearted and crying with the AIDS patient who's dying or with the person dying of cancer. D, a single glimpse of what I saw should be enough to call forth unbounded affection for all living beings. For however ugly, smelly, or tiresome they may seem, all that is real about them is that gloriously blissful shining consciousness which formed the center of my experience, hatred, dislike, disdain, aversion for any being sharing that consciousness. Any being at all must amount to blasphemy 
in one who has seen being itself. He says it makes no sense to hate another being, to fully resent another Selem Elohim. And I know we have to end. It's literally two more paragraphs and we're done very short. It may be objected that my description of the experience is too closely reminiscent of, uh, of Varjayana imagery and that what I perceived was not reality at all, but a mere subjective illusion based on the content of my previous studies and practices. The answer to this objection is that, as Aldous Huxley brought out so well in his perennial philosophy, in all ages, and all countries, everyone who has undergone a profound mystical experience, even though in essence its content is apparently the same, as, uh, the same in every case, has been compelled to fall back on the imagery of his co-religionists or of those for whom he writes. The experience itself is so unlike anything known to us in ordinary states of consciousness. There are no words to describe it. Moreover, while my own experience fully confirmed what my Varajayana teachers had taught me, it was much too far into my previous understanding of those teachings to have been a subjective illusion based on them. He's saying, I couldn't have made this up myself. And furthermore, it's just something that is, when you undergo this profound experience, anyone who's undergone this will understand that the content is always going to be the case for anybody who experiences this, no matter what part of the earth you're from. And that's amazing because that's Aldous Huxley's perennial philosophy. Mystics of all cultures who have never met are saying the same thing about this stuff. That's got to mean something. As to how it happens that a dose of mescaline can make such an experience possible to someone who has not yet attained it by the profound and prolonged practice of yogic meditation, I just do not know. The way I explain it to my own satisfaction is that the effect of mescaline is to free the consciousness temporarily from the obstacles to true realization of universal unity normally imposed by that karmic structure, which each of us takes to be his individual self. I believe that psychologists of C.G. Jung's school would have no difficulty in expressing this idea in terms more scientifically acceptable. Indeed, if one of them chances to read this article, I shall be grateful if he will elucidate my mescaline experience in scientific terms for the sake of those not prepared to accept my mystical and perhaps quasi-religious explanation of its content. And that's the end of it. So for me, I just want to leave you with that because we can talk about mystical unity and we can speak about the, the way that religious people talk about this. But when you've heard somebody who's undergone it to such a profound level, who writes about it so beautifully, and they're echoing all these ideas, I hope that it gives you the faith that it really is real. And uh, my favorite part of this is that he's saying you should know in reality, it has been that the whole time. You are currently in bliss. You don't know it, but you are currently in the best bliss you could ever imagine. And you say, what about suffering? And I have no answer that will satisfy you. But the way Alan Watts puts it, I wrote down here, is it's almost like the ability to revel in suffering and 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 let me just tell you exactly the words that he uses because it's pretty interesting the idea of first of all everything being a hallucination but the idea of reveling in agony you could be in agony but somehow even the agony is a way of reveling in life and i have no way of putting that in a better way because suffering really hurts and it bothers us and we don't understand it and it's something we struggle with but maybe when you get to this level, you'll look back and you'll say, oh, my God, I can't believe that whole time it was really reveling. And you might want to punch me at this point because, you know, I can't explain your suffering, nor can I explain my own. But what I do know is that this kind of thing gives me the faith that this whole time 
everything is so inherently beautiful and meaningful and incredible that it's, it justifies its own existence at all moments. And you should just know that and try to get into the groove of all of it. Any questions or comments? <laughs> I don't really leave you guys with much, uh, much else to say, I guess. I'm still trying to figure out if we should take the risk. <laughs> <laughs> if you got a guy, let me know. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty incredible, honestly. This is mind blowing, and you can see life altering. Yeah. Any any questions and comments from the people on Zoom? Yeah, I have one from the first section yeah, or part sure. of the class. I I remembered it then, but I I was walking with headphones and I had to hold it because you had went ahead. Not your fault. Anyway. I'm hoping I'll remember most of it, but you had said at one point that I, I think, and I need to ask you, you said the best way to deal with the situation is to respond with equanimity. If you do not have equanimity, mm -hmm. then you know, pause for five minutes and then, you know, take the phone call or respond. Was this in response to anger? Is that what you said that to? That's what I was thinking. But I think in anything, even, even too much exuberant joy might be, if you think, in part of your head, well, I was going to go. Okay, so I wanted to know if the answer was anger because I was about to go there about the joy. But go ahead, say that. Part yeah, no, I think I think it's exactly if if you think that your emotion will be too overwhelming for the other person to handle, take those five minutes to be more in equanimity and and talk from there because you're probably going to respond in more wisdom and result in less suffering on both sides in that way. So very very interesting. So I was gonna. I think I had a question about thirty or forty minutes ago when you said that. So I'll just talk out the, the joy part. Maybe <laughs> That's what I love it, yeah. <laughs> so sure. the, the response to anger is great. Um, very helpful. Not the easiest maybe for people to do. They have to be aware of what you're saying, but great. Um, in any case, what I notice, and I'll, I'll just give you from my experiences, and I don't always do this, but in business, if you're on the phone, let's just say, and things are going well, you get this sort of, it's almost the opposite of what you were talking about with the anger. You get this sort of positive reinforcement. Um, and what I notice is, you know, it's like if you're on the phone and things are going well, you just, you call another person and another person. It doesn't matter if it's people you're selling and I'm not really in sales or if it's tasks that you have to do. One kind of feeds into the next um, and it's almost like this, you, you kind of just keep getting better. I mean, at some point you probably say something stupid and then, and then it's, you know, you got too high on yourself. Oh, right. This is in reference to the ego you were talking about. So in the other one, you were saying, if your ego is too hot, calm down, respond. Right. I don't, I find the opposite. And I, and I, cause I know at several points, either in this and in last week's lecture, you were mentioning the positives of the ego, so to speak. Right. So I would say the opposite of the anger example is I notice again in business, if I, if, if I'm doing one task, it goes well, then you do another task. It kind of, it puts you into this positive reinforcement feedback loop where you just, you just like multiply your productivity and you don't. Um, and that to me seems like ego, but yeah. it's, there's a way of channeling it where it's just, it's very productive. I got, I'm sorry, I got to hang up on you because we got to go to say, say Avi, but I will say one last thing. That is was I, my point. Do you have any response on that with, in relation to ego? Because I, I think, got where I wanted to. I think that certainly can be ego. I think it's, it's certainly something for you to meditate on or for that person to meditate on. 
Um, and yeah, to, to try to respond in equanimity, even to that, even to something that seems like a positive feedback loop that's feeding that narcissistic supply that some of us might have. Ah, so in other words, that's not necessarily, given your teachings, that's not necessarily something to engage in. You want to pause with that as well. Yeah, I think everything can be paused with and, and you know, meditated on. But I got to run, Ezra. Hazak, everybody, I'm sorry, there's not more time for questions. We'll address anything else next week. Hazak, Baruch, Baruch, Adonai, Le'olam, Amen, Amen. Thank you.